Hello and welcome to the DNA Politics Podcast. I'm Michael Sturrock, the Public Affairs Manager at the DNA. Uh, today we are talking about misinformation online and more specifically about misinformation in relation to the coronavirus pandemic. And the reason for that is that a new fact-checking service called Infotasion has been set up by the Conservative Backbench MP and former chair of the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Committee, Damien Collins MP, along with the founder of Iconic Labs and co-founder of Unilad, Liam Harrington, who I'm delighted to say are both joining me from their respective homes uh, today. Hello to you both. Hello, hello. Hi. And we are also joined by John Nicholson MP, who is the SNP Shadow Secretary of State for DCMS and one of the parliamentary supporters of the group. And John is also a journalist <coughs> and a broadcaster, so we're keen to get his views on the topic as well. Thanks all for joining me. Hello to you as well, John. Hello. Hello. Right, Liam, I wanted to get started with you before we let the politicians loose. Um, let's start <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, how did your teaming up, teaming up with Damien happen and the creation of Invitation come to be? And what is the problem it's designed to help solve? Well, I think it was, first and foremost, I think it was a mutual understanding that there's multiple uh, issues to address within the sort of digital landscape as a whole. Um, and I think obviously with Damien's knowledge and, and previous history, uh, we kind of, and, and obviously my previous history within the social media and digital world, it kind of seemed like an obvious partnership I'm, I kind of put myself down there as uh, an on-the-ground foot soldier, as it were. So I kind of get to see everything that's going on and the movements that are being made within um, within the digital landscape. Um, and Damien obviously has access to, uh, you know, a lot of people that previously I would have never had the chance to speak to. And some of the stuff that we've seen in the past kind of eight years I've been doing this, we've asked, we've had so many questions and wondered. Why, why can we never work with someone who's like-minded, who sits in a position of, uh, you, know, you know, sort of power to be able to actually address these issues? So on a kind of met through a mutual friend, Damien and I, and we um, came up with the idea of combating fake news through digital. Now, I think, as I said, with, with everything going on at the current, in the current climate, it's vital, it's vital that we address these issues because these are, there are some things going on at the moment that are far worse, potentially far worse than the actual virus itself. And I know we're here, to, you know, I know Invitation is focusing on COVID-19, but as I said, some of the stuff that we've seen is p potentially far worse than what is going on actually in the mm. world. It's tough. <laughs> And, and Damien, what, and you've obviously got a lot of experience in uh, tackling the misinformation issue. You chaired the investigation into the misinformation uh, and fake news. Um, is, is there something about the misinformation about coronavirus that makes it worse than run-of-the-mill misinformation in regards to you know, anything other than you might, you might see online? Or is it, is it purely because the stakes are higher with coronavirus that it makes it particularly insidious? Well, I think we're seeing this is the first major public health emergency in the era of social media disinformation. And disinformation can be deadly in that context. We've seen already uh, stories of people who have lost their lives or have been hospitalized because they've tried to take a drug or a chemical that they believe would cure them of uh, COVID-19. We saw the extraordinary situation in the last few days of people attacking phone masts and abusing telecoms workers in the street. 
because they've believed a conspiracy theory online that coronavirus has been caused by 5G. So we see that it's not just about a bit of tittle-tattle and amusing content people share through social media. It's designed to influence the way people behave and change behavior. And that can have disastrous consequences. So a lot of the debate in the last few years around disinformation has really been in the election interference <coughs> space. But I think what we've seen here is just how dangerous it is when you overlay that across a public health emergency. Mm. And there sort of seems to be, you touched upon it there, there seems to be kind of two types of misinformation. There's the, um, there's the more um, insidious type, which is deliberately designed to try and cause harm. But there's also the kind of hearsay that you might get from, you know, your, your auntie or something on Facebook who's heard something from a friend who thinks something is the case. Is there, is, but that's, that, that sort of second type of mis misinformation seems to be quite prevalent within the coronavirus <laughs> conversation. Do you, do you think there's a reason for that? Um, well, I think it's because it's a very fast moving issue. Um, this, is a, this is a disease that didn't exist uh, not that long ago and we still don't have a cure for it and we don't really quite understand how it all works. And against that, you've got a, a background of the government introducing new measures all of the time. So it's not surprising that people are searching for information. And when, you, and when we were doing this as well, I mean, in the, in the select committee inquiry, we looked in particular at platforms like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube for disinformation. I think in this uh, coronavirus uh, situation, WhatsApp and text messaging is also really important as well. And what you see there is people receiving messages that say, you know, my friend who works for the NHS or my friend who knows an academic who works in this hospital overseas says this is what they've discovered and you need to share this quickly because this is really important. And that could be a conspiracy theory about the way the virus spreads, um, you know, false uh, information about how you can protect yourself from it. Uh, and that's, that is also very damaging too. Um, because anything that misleads people about what they need to do to keep themselves safe during a during a, a situation like this is potentially harmful. So I think we've, we've seen this before with some of the anti-vaccine campaign uh, campaigns online, particularly around things like the MMR jab. And that has undoubtedly led to children dying of measles because they weren't vaccinated properly. Mm. What we're seeing now is with coronavirus, a whole, again, a whole mass of fake stories out there which are designed to mislead people, some of them being spread maliciously, some of them maybe being spread for people to try and make money or but just by creating viral content. But there's a lot of it out there and we need to make it really, I think what we need to achieve is a mindset change for people with this, that when they see something that doesn't look right, their first instinct is to check it, uh, you know, to go to a service like, it, service like Invotation, get it checked out, get the correct results. But then crucially, not just hold that knowledge to themselves, but share that back. And I think in this environment, you know, accuracy is important, but advocacy is even more important. That's one of the reasons why I was so keen to work with Liam and his colleagues on this as well, because you know, they are experts in actually sh seeing content spread through social media. And that's what we want to do here. We want people to send stuff to us so we can check it, but then we want the results to spread back out. Mm. Well, fundamentally, so, sorry, just to add to that point, fundamentally there's, there's, it's a behavioral issue as well. We are, a, we are a fickle group of people whereby we, much, we would much rather share bad news than good news. That's always been the case on social media. Social media and digital, the bad news has always got the clicks and it's sad. It's really, it really isn't good. So let's take the 5G, for example. There has been, my, even my mum is getting involved in the act about 5G. But what, what, so that's been spread hundreds and thousands of times. But what hasn't been spread is the fact 
that there's only five countries with 5G masts. <laughs> I, think be, I think there's far more countries with COVID-19 than that. So, you know, no one's spreading that news and that is the news yeah. that needs to be spread. But almost, it's like an antidote really, isn't it? You, you sort of need the, you need the fake news to come out and be controlled for the antidote to then come in and just eat away at it. But you need power behind the antidote. You need people. That, so that, that's where I think um, Damien and I work very well together. It's because he can make me aware of, of the, the news that is spreading, the fake news that is spreading. And then I can hopefully come in with my networks and the people that I know within the digital landscape and sort of mm. say to them all, stop. Be socially responsible. Talk to me. Talk to Invitagen. And let's actually start spreading the, the, the truth. Let's spread the facts rather than the false. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. carrying on the on the, the the fat subject, and we'll come on to how Infotagent actually works in, in a little bit. But John, I was keen to have your input because of your <laughs> long as distinguished career in German journalism, and and this question will be relevant to how Invitagent goes about fact checking as well. So come to the others afterwards. But as a journalist, you uh, it's your job obviously to source true information to reports that's validated by yourself, and then you transmit it as accurately as possible. Yet. Yeah? One of the issues with coronavirus is that while, um, you know, it's, it's certainly a moving situation, but the, the conversations around it are scientific, but they're kind of still working on a kind of best case knowledge scenario. And there's been cases where the best case scientific knowledge has been advertised or publicly announced, but then turns out to be not quite true or is like developed in a couple of days beyond that, or just not originally what we thought it was. So for example, there was and um, some people were saying or there was a, there was a study in fact into uh, how long um, coronavirus lives on packaging that people receive through their doors and it, it turns out it only survives on cardboard and packaging for an hour or so whereas before everyone was petrified because the study showed that it was coming through the door and could live there for 24 hours so all of a sudden post became this massive threat and um, which which is kind of completely false but it just was a it was a process of you know scientific validation that led to that being misproved yet at the time we thought it was the case that post could be this this threat of coronavirus so how, how does the media kind of how is the media affected by that because obviously you have people then saying oh the bbc talk radio europe europe station all these you know trusted news sources are giving misinformation or fake news and how, how do you combat that yeah i noticed a wag on twitter yesterday saying it's a beautiful day outside so I think I'll stay in and wa I'll wash my post. Um, you're right to make a distinction uh, between the malevolent actors out there and people who simply pass on misinformation because it's what their friends have told them. Those are very, very different things. And you look at somebody like David Icke, for example. I remember David Icke from his days as a sportscaster before he became a believer in in lizards. Now David Icke has got a huge following on social media and when he used to tell people that the royal family were lizards from outer space, ultimately bizarre but harmless, made him quite rich I suspect, but it didn't matter. But David Icke telling us all that uh, coronavirus comes from 5G masts, that's on a whole new level. I think it's important to remember that while we as politicians and journalists and folk who are particularly interested in this are absorbing lots of information, a lot of people out there aren't. So I think you've got to keep it very, very simple. Um, 
The clinical director of Scotland is a man called Jason Leach, with no training in the media whatsoever. I've had him on my talk radio show for the last few weeks with half an hour's worth of just asking him very simple questions. So, for example, the issue about how long the virus lives on packaging, I didn't know the answer to that, uh, but it's, 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 it's slightly more complicated than people might think. I, I discovered through him that it depends how shiny the surface is, apparently. I didn't know that. I, I could have O-grade in biology and, and nothing more. But, but some types of surface, it, it dies very quickly. Other types of surface, it lasts for a long time. Shiny surfaces, he said, scientists now believe is where it lasts the longest. So I think as journalists, we've got a duty to keep asking simple questions that people can digest and give them simple, credible answers. And that's where politicians and journalists are as, are as at one. Mm. And do you have, uh, at the moment, do you get a lot of constituents uh, emailing in or contacting you? Uh, do, they, do they appear to have a good grasp of what information about coronavirus is? Or is there a lot of misinformation floating about? Well, I think one of the problems was the way Parliament behaved uh, weeks ago, because we were telling constituents that we believed that this was spread, it was spread in particles of spittle, um, that people could be infected by the particles of spittle if they were at close distance. And yet, you'd look at the House of Commons, and there were MPs crammed together like sardines. Now, why on earth should constituents, I imagine they'll think to themselves, why should we listen to what these politicians are saying when they're behaving in a way that completely contradicts the advice they themselves are giving? So I think politicians played both a, a good role in disseminating good information early on or the best information they could get. But the, the, the look of the House of Commons didn't sit at all with the information that politicians were trying to, to spread. So I, I think at the outset, at outset there, was a, there was conflicting messages which confused people. But now I think the messages have become much clearer. Stay at home, stay with your family, don't go out unless you really need to. I think those messages are really, really clear now. And I noticed that from my post bag, people do seem to have got the message in, in a way that they hadn't a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And Damien, do you agree with that about Parliament? Was it slow off the mark in how it dealt with coronavirus? Yeah, well, but I think it was, I think Parliament reflected the journey the country went on a bit as well, which is that, you know, the, we went from seeing this as being a, a, a sort of nasty virus that could be managed in a much more, if you like, casual way than has turned out to be the case, you know, uh, and, and, you know, we've followed a step-by-step -step process of, of, of social distancing, you know, self-isolation uh, to, you know, really requesting that people don't, in, you know, go out at all unless they, unless they really have to. So I think, you know, Parliament, you know, caught up with that a, a little bit uh, and we started introducing measures around, around distancing in the way the chamber works. So only having people in the Prime Minister's questions if they had a question on the order paper to ask rather than just everyone being there. Uh, we've got, there have been rules around changing the way we vote to try and make sure that there isn't a cram of people going through the chamber. I'll be very interested to see you know, when Parliament's due to come back after the Easter break, you know, if we go back as a virtual Parliament, you know, um, and there have been discussions about how that could work. So I could, 
I could see that both in terms of voting electronically, speaking remotely, using you know, Zoom to ask questions of, uh, of ministers. Um, it will be interesting to see what we do, but I, I can't see Parliament going back to business as normal in the next few weeks any more than the country will. Mm. And going back to misinformation more broadly, um, to what level do you perceive it to be a threat uh, sort of akin to that to other national security issues? Um, and, and you've kind of outlined it, is, is that threat? And do we now exist in a situation where, um, you know, you might say the leader of one of our closest allies is, is responsible for distributing quite a lot of misinformation, particularly on coronavirus. And how, how does the UK kind of deal um, with its neighbours and partners and indeed enemies um, who proliferate misinformation? Well, well, firstly, yeah, I mean, disinformation is a weapon. It always, always has been. Um, and, you know, we just call it propaganda, you know, but it's, um, it, it, it is. And whether it is um, foreign states... Um, I mean, there's been a lot of analysis looking at uh, whether um, China is seeking to uh, spread confusion over the source and origin of coronavirus and suggesting it might not come from there. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about saying that it came from labs rather than from uh, the market in Wuhan, uh, that it was caused by the Americans who were seeking to blame it on the Chinese. There's a whole whole series of counter narratives being spread out there. There's a lot of amplification of aid efforts by different countries to help others as well. So there's a lot of politically motivated information around coronavirus on, online and therefore I think we have a duty to try and exclude the false from the from the true and to warn people of things that are untrustworthy sources of information and of course we know that you know Chinese disinformation in Asia and Australasia and Oceania area has been a factor for a number of years just as Russian disinformation in Europe uh, has been something we've been familiar with over the last few years as well, and, and you know, it is a lot, a lot of that is going to be politically motivated. So, I think in some ways there, may, there have probably been people that have been blind to that problem in the past that will now really wake up to it because a public health mm. emergency does make people focus on things in a way they've not done before because they can see potential real-world impacts of that. I think one of the things that um, the social media companies have been prepared to do, you know, Twitter in particular, and I, I congratulate them for this, is actually acting against statesmen whose statements are false. You know, we've seen them take down, Twitter took down statements from uh, leaders in South America, which were considered to be false and misleading and potentially harmful. And that's right to say, just because this is an open platform, you can't necessarily what, say what you like if what you say is going to cause harm to others. Uh, Donald Trump is in a category of his own in many ways. And in some ways, one of the reasons we don't use the term fake news in the in the fake news business, if you like, is that it's been so discredited by him, who just uses it as a term for anything he um, himself doesn't have yeah. to agree with. He calls fake news, rather than seeing this as you know. But but again, I think we should we should call the people out, and the social media companies should also call out statements that are false or even take down statements, even if they come from the president of a country. Well, the comment's right. It's what it's it's a remarkable thing, you know, to have a president in Trump or Bolsonaro. Uh, whom uh, Davian referenced there in Brazil, um, South America's biggest country, who's deliberately um, spreading uh, false news uh, about the virus in a way that will cause enormous harm to his own people. And it's for re-election purposes. There's no other explanation uh, for it because a weakened economy uh, reduces Bolsonaro's chances of re-election. And the same goes for for Trump. So they both seem to be prepared to sacrifice um, th their own citizens for their personal objectives. It, it's, it is remarkable. But as Damien says, uh, fake news has become, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an old phenomenon, 
but in the internet age, it spreads remarkably. It spreads like a virus, doesn't it? And one of the challenges for us, I think, is to work out how we're going to reach out to the people who don't trust what they call the mainstream media. Um, take the White Helmets, uh, for example, the group of uh, civilians in Syria who run towards uh, the Assad regime bombs and rescue people who've been trapped by the bombs. If you ever tweet, they're heroic, they've been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Independent journalists will verify the work that they do. But they are deeply threatening to Assad and his regime. If you ever tweet anything about them or tweet supportively of them, you'll get bombarded with uh, messages from folk who will tell you that the White Helmets are terrorists, sometimes even from people that I've met, uh, occasionally constituents, and you'll write back and ask them on what basis they're saying that. And they're never able to explain it except to, to reference um, uh, some propagandists, uh, internet propagandists, who of course are paid for uh, by Assad and his regime. How do you reach those people who don't trust uh, public service broadcasters or what they call the mainstream media? It's a, it's a real challenge. Well, Liam, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, just it was more so the fact that the common denominator here is uh, connectivity, where it's a blessing and a curse and we're sort of masters of our own demise. We've created a, a wilderness society here where we're also connected so easily, which means that unfortunately it's very difficult to control the narrative once it starts spreading. So it goes back to my point about, you know, you have, you have to be able to counter the point. You almost have to let, let the news happen, but be able to stop it at its earliest given point. So that requires a lot of eyes on, but you, to, 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 live in a, to try and live in a world where you can now stop news from even entering the, the digital ecosystem is false. You just simply can't. But what you can do is you can counter it. And that's like, that's almost standard PR. That's been going on for years. You know, we've worked with many sort of fast food chains in the past who have, you know, encountered problems within their kitchens, for example. And, you know, you can't, you can't stop the news coming out about someone finding something in their burger, you know. But what you can do is you can come in with lots of positive news and just mute it you can keep it quiet and stop it from spreading. And then suddenly people will move on to the next thing. Liam, on, to, Liam if I may, on the, on the white helmets as, as an example, because the work that they're doing is so heroic. It is such a good news narrative, rescuing children from rubble uh, where bombs have been dropped, um, yeah. where chemical weapons have been dropped. And then the international agencies prove that the chemical weapons have been dropped. How do you manage to persuade perfectly decent citizens in this country that the false narratives that they are hearing are false. Why would they rather listen to um, some extremist um, in, in Damascus rather than a Channel 4 news reporter? That's, ultimately, that's what I find hard to get. I agree. The, the White Helmets is a phenomenal example. Back at, back at Unilad, we interviewed a few people from the White Helmets and we just had to not, we couldn't put the interview out in the end because it was that they, they were worried about their own safety. It was, it, was, it was madness. And obviously, if we had managed to go and spread that news, it would have been great, great news for them. But at the end of the day, if they've got the threat over their heads of their safety, what, we would never do that.
we would never do that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one, but as I said, it's all surround, look, look at WhatsApp, for example. So WhatsApp, they, you know, one of, the, one of the most common ways that news is being shared at the moment is via the forwarding function. So you simply get a message on your phone, you hit forward and you forward it to 20 people. WhatsApp, no, they cannot stop these sort of messages being spread. So what they've done is they've just sort of said, you can only forward now to one person at a time, I think. Which is good, but it doesn't solve the problem. It slows the problem, but it doesn't solve the problem. Because we are quite a savvy bunch of people now. And we all know that all we have to do is go back to the old function on WhatsApp, whereby you download the photo to your phone and you spread it that way. You just can't track that way of spread. You can track the forwarding. You can't track the, the, the photo to photo to photo. It's difficult. It's about... Mm. It is about trying to put as much positive news, which is also super interesting, into the ecosystem to get that spread. But as I said before, people seem to be more interested in the negative than they are the positive. So <laughs> will um, Infotagen, will one, one of its functions as well as obviously debunking the uh, misinformation that's out there, but will it be a, a font of correct knowledge that will be firing out as much true and good information as possible absolutely we have an, we have a network of about 40 million actually we have access to about 40 million people within um within the social ecosystem so that varies from people who uh, are sort of publishers with websites themselves or instagram pages anyone with a voice so all we're doing is we're going to be speaking to them and we're going to be saying listen if your eyes ever come across something that you don't think is right or actually just even if you've got 0.01% of a thought that this is not correct. You run it through Invitagen and we'll go and put it out the other, we'll check it, we'll put it out the other side and then you can go and post it. So whilst we're also doing that, we will be also putting out some positive real news. So the, the real, the ones that have been, you know, the, um, the ones that have been fact-checked already on the website, we'll be working them up into nice little digital pictures that can go and be spread. You know, um, but my plan as well is to also just get get a real kind of army within the digital landscape who are willing to kind of say, look, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice those couple of million views that I get because we need to get through this together. Mm. That's what I really require from people. And I'll be, so and how I'll, do, I will be able to get that. Yeah, great. How do individuals and businesses get involved? Um, I mean, I've got, as I said, I've got my own. I've got my own network that I sort of start the get the ball rolling and i just mm. encourage people to tell the next person to tell the next person to come and speak to me if they want to get involved um as i said we do already have a real um stronghold in mm. the uk ireland scotland wales etc we, we we are good here but if we want to start spreading it worldwide then you know i'll have to kind of work a bit harder there <laughs> sure. we've, we've we've got as well as people you know we've got a We'll see a cross-party parliamentary uh, group of people here, but also parliamentarians in Ireland and in Canada who are supporting this too. And uh, we're, we're developing relationships with think tanks and universities around the world um, that are part of our supporter base. The one thing we'd say, I think we've had a lot of people come forward since we launched at the end of March saying, you know, what can we do to help? And, um, you know, there's, I think people from, a, you know, from the audience for this podcast, you know, I'd say, you know, for We've got some people coming forward who are furloughed staff working for digital agencies who are saying, well, you know, I could vol I'd, be, I'd be happy to volunteer and help in, in, in support Infotagen and getting the message out there to use their own networks 
and their skills to do that. And that's incredibly helpful to us because advocacy around you know what we do and also getting getting the true messages out there is is really important and i think one thing that sort of i think stands you know stands out from what we try to do so far is that if you go onto infotagen what you'll see is fact checks based on real messages that people have seen you can, you'll see a screenshot of the whatsapp message or the post on instagram that a real person has seen and sent into us and what we're and our fact checks respond to that and um, so obviously we want more people to send stuff in so it's not just generic advice saying this is this is what you should believe and if it doesn't agree with this then it's not true well yeah it's, it's, it's written in response to what people see it is crucial that the, that, the, that the posts remain relatable and 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 as they as they came sort of thing so as i see on social media it has to appear on the website people need to be able to see that we're not we're not just kind of taking the text and re-uploading it this is how raw it is we're, we're listening to people and we're really fact-checking here, the, the actual thing that you're seeing. That, that post that you're sharing, we're fact-checking. Maybe next mm. time you think twice about sharing it. Sure. Mm. So one last question before we wrap up. Looking to the future, obviously this is, you know, in an ideal world, this would be how the internet worked as a matter of course. Um, you'd have these kind of functions that you could correct the misinformation online. So how, how do you see, whether it be, you know, individuals, businesses, uh, legislators, how do you see this problem progressing as we go forward? Well, if, if, I, if I kick off, um, so for, from, a, from a legislative point of view, I mean, I've argued um, in the past uh, and, and the select committee in the past argued as well that we should you know, make it an offence for people to sort of knowingly and maliciously spread harmful disinformation. And I would see during a health crisis like coronavirus, you're spreading disinformation, again, knowingly and maliciously about it will harm public health, could, could lead to people losing their lives. And it should be an offence to do it. And I think it should also be an offence for the tech companies not to act against that content if and when they're made aware of it. And for me, that should include not just acting against the content itself, but also if you can identify networks of accounts or groups that are knowingly spreading it as well, then we should act against that too. Now, there's been a long process in Parliament looking at this and discussing the online harms proposals the government put forward. Um, we're not going to, that's not going to be legislated for in the next few weeks. So in the absence of that, I think it's really important that we, that we have a campaigns like, like Infotagion that, that seek to educate people to, to check what they see and to share the results. John, anything to add on that? No, I think it's, a, I think it's an interesting idea. The idea that uh, there should be a, a penalty for spreading this stuff. Um, we all know that the social media platforms were very slow to react to that because they called themselves platforms rather than publishers and they're clearly publishers and there's an experience in Germany with Facebook which is what once uh, the German parliamentarians decided that uh, Facebook should be responsible for false content um, Facebook in Germany, faced with penalties, suddenly took on lots of editors who would monitor the stuff that was being posted. Um, and that proved to be very effective. I think we've been far too slow in, in, uh, in, in, in playing a bit heavier with, the, um, with Facebook and, and, and others in this country. And I think uh, this will be, uh, this, this, if, if nothing else is a wake-up call, this is a wake-up call because um, unlike um, the disinformation around Brexit, which was a political hot potato because 
Brexiteers were very happy for there to be disinformation on Brexit. With this, it's entirely different because nobody wants disinformation. Well, nobody mainstream, no mainstream parliamentarian wants disinformation spread over a, over a killer virus. Liam, any final thoughts? Yeah, just think on uh, with regard, within social and digital. Um, I've been saying it for years. I think there needs to be a governing body or, or, or a, a regulator that, which sits the level below the owners. So which sits below the Facebooks, Twitters and YouTubes. Someone who will be that foot soldier who can see what the publishers and what the pages and what the influencers and what all these people with the voices are doing and making sure they are being responsible because there is absolutely nothing. It's the wild, it really is the wild west out there and it has been since about 2013. That's when I started seeing it. So someone needs to be able to sit and whilst yes, we can blame the Facebooks and the Twitters for, for perhaps uh, suggesting they could do more, there is a lot of work to be done with the people who are utilizing these platforms. Great. Well, thanks very much, everyone. That's been a really interesting discussion. Uh, you can find Invitation at invitation.com, I believe. And you're also on uh, Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. And, and are you on Facebook? I didn't see you. Yeah, we're on Facebook. Yeah, thought so. There you go. Great. So, uh, of course, you can see um, all of that online. And please do uh, get in touch with any of us if you have any questions about what you've heard today. Um, and you'll be able to find everyone on Twitter and, and via email, etc. online. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And we'll be uh, in touch soon with the next episode of the DMA Politics Podcast. Cheerio.